Hey everybody, Jeremy Markovich here. Two quick notes before we get going. First, this podcast has a new home. It's now part of the North Carolina Rabbit Hole, which you can find at ncrabbithole.com. There you can check out previous episodes of Away Message. You can find any new episodes that we're putting out. And if you like this podcast, I think, no guarantees, but I think you will like my weekly newsletter. It is about weird North Carolina stuff. Comes out every Thursday. It is free if you want it to be. And you can sign up at ncrabbithole.com. Second, this episode was produced during my time at Our State Magazine. Now, I happen to think that most of it still holds up, but some of the promo codes and websites that I mention may no longer work. Okay, here's the show. There's this movie called National Treasure. It came out all the way back in 2004, stars Nicolas Cage. And there is this scene where... Nick Cage walks into the National Archives and takes a look at this really old document that's sitting underneath glass. I'm gonna steal it. <clears throat> what? I'm gonna steal the Declaration of Independence. Spoiler alert, he actually does steal it. And yeah, it's pretty far-fetched. Or at least it sounds far-fetched. Unless you've heard about the very real story that I'm going to tell you today. Now, this story did not happen in Washington, D.C. It happened in North Carolina, and it didn't involve the Declaration of Independence, but rather another one of the documents that our country was founded on, a document that I wanted to go see in person. Okay, let's let's go. That is Sarah Koontz. She's North Carolina's state archivist, and she's leading me down into the basement of the state archives in Raleigh. Most people, when they see the door, say, oh, that's really a vault door. I'm like, yes, it's really a vault. There are some ground rules, no flash photography, and no video of her unlocking the vault. Seriously, that vault has one of those big spinning dials on it. Nice creak of the door. (laughs) Yeah. You will hear the separate air conditioner in here, uh-huh. separate air handler, and unit for this. Room. Yeah. It's a little chilly in here. It's kept at a constant 56 degrees and 39% humidity. Documents and microfilm like it cool, dark, and dry. And then Sarah gets out the thing that I came to see. There's a big metal rack, and one of the shelves has rollers on it. Sarah slides it out, tilts it down, takes off a plastic cover, pulls back a muslin cloth, and... Oh, wow. So there he is. He's very, very large. Very large. It's a he. We do kind of give him a, a masculine pronoun uh-huh. for no particular reason, mainly because we like to refer to him as Bill. For Bill of Rights. <laughs> it's the Bill of Rights. Or, more precisely, North Carolina's original copy of the Bill of Rights. It's this piece of faded parchment, more than 200 years old, about two and a half feet tall, underneath glass, in a big gold-rimmed picture frame. The writing is hard to see, but what you see is pretty amazing. Is that is that really John Adams' signature? There, like that, that by his own hand? It is really John Adams' signature. All right, so if you're struggling to remember your U.S. history, let me explain. You know about the Constitution, which was ratified in 1789, but two states did not ratify the Constitution, and that included Rhode Island and North Carolina. And Congress says, okay, Rhode Island, okay, North Carolina, 
What's it going to take to make you guys happy? So one of the early actions of Congress was to do what people from North Carolina were asking for, which is create a Bill of Rights. You know, First Amendment, freedom of speech, assembly, press, the Second Amendment, right to bear arms, the Third Amendment, no quartering of troops in private homes. Been a while since that was a thing. Anyway, this thing that we're looking at here in the vault looks almost identical to the federal copy of the Bill of Rights, the one that's on display at the National Archives in Washington, D.C. But that copy in D.C., was not the only copy that was made. When the Bill of Rights was proposed in Congress, they created 14 original copies, one for each of the original states and one that the federal government kept. And North Carolina's was sent to us and has had a long and interesting journey. And that is one of the world's biggest understatements. For a very long time, this priceless document was missing. Somebody stole it and it was gone from North Carolina For more than 100 years, it first reappeared in an office 500 miles away. Then it went underground. Every so often, a shadowy figure would approach the state trying to sell it back, sometimes for millions of dollars. And so the story of North Carolina's Bill of Rights is actually the story of the biggest heist in state history. It involves a Union soldier from the Civil War, an undercover sting operation by the FBI, and a guy who used to be a regular on the Antiques Roadshow, and it also involves a mistake. Do you want to hear about the, um, the copy error? Oh, yeah. Is there, yeah there's, there's, a, there's a copy error in here? Yeah. It's a typo that's right there in plain sight that I never in a million years would have ever picked up on. But it's a typo that may have kept the North Carolina Bill of Rights from slipping out of the state's grasp for good. From Our State Magazine, this is Away Message, a podcast about what you find in hard-to-find places. I'm Jeremy Markovich. So if you want to know how the Bill of Rights went missing, you have to walk about a block away from the state archives to the old state capitol building in downtown Raleigh, go through the metal detector, walk upstairs to the third floor, into a small room. It's not not much today. Yeah, I was going to say, it's just kind of like a, it's a room in between the rooms. It is. It kind of leads to the the galleries of the Senate chamber here. Um, Tara Schramm, who manages the Capitol building, takes me into what's probably the least ornate room in the entire Capitol. Light purple walls, granite floor, one window. It looks sort of like an oversized closet. There used to be some cabinets and cupboards in here, and stuffed into one of them was the folded up copy of the Bill of Rights, just hanging out there. Back in the early 1800s, anybody could walk in, pull it out, and look at it. Not much security back then. You could even just walk right on up to the roof if you wanted to. And we've got lots of graffiti of folks who visited the roof, but, you know, it was just a a different time. For decades, the Bill of Rights stayed put. Nobody even thought about taking it. That is, until April of 1865. The Civil War was just about over, and General Sherman and his troops were headed toward Raleigh. Remember, Sherman had burned Atlanta to the ground. North Carolina's governor did not want the same thing to happen to Raleigh. He left town. He left the keys here with a, uh, an enslaved person and told them to you know, let them in if they needed to come in. So the first 
group of soldiers that came in was actually the Signal Corps. Sherman's troops were here for about uh, two weeks. They occupied the, the space for, for a while, and they were encamped kind of on the grounds and all around until they made their way to Durham for the final surrender of the war. But during that intervening time, there are Union troops just hanging out without much to do. They poked around. We have some graffiti from some of the Union soldiers in the attic, so they certainly went through every inch of this building while they were here looking for spoils of war and souvenirs and all kinds of stuff. So. They looted the place. Now, again, the governor knew the soldiers were coming, and when he left, he took a lot of things with him. They had sent away a lot of the documents. They sent them to Burlington for safekeeping. I don't know how they missed the Bill of Rights. That seems like an important one, but that one did not make the cut, so it was still here. And at some point in April of 1865, a Union soldier walks up to the third floor of the Capitol, starts rooting through some papers, finds the copy of the Bill of Rights, and he takes it. A few weeks later, the war is over, and that soldier heads home to Ohio, to a little town just outside of Dayton. And a year after the war, the soldier is talking to a friend from Indiana named Charles Shotwell. David Howard, who wrote a book about North Carolina's copy of the Bill of Rights, says, the soldier's like, hey, Charles, are you interested in this thing? Charles ended up buying it for $5, uh, which is like one of my favorite details of the whole story. It was... Uh, adhered into a, a very kind of plain, ordinary picture frame and just hung up. Charles Shotwell was a grain salesman who worked in Indianapolis, and he quietly hung on to the Bill of Rights for years until 1897. A reporter from the local newspaper is in Shotwell's office, and he says, hey, what's that hanging on the wall? Shotwell tells him the whole backstory. The reporter goes back and writes an article That article ends up being printed in a newspaper in Raleigh, and North Carolina's leaders read it and are like, wait a minute. The North Carolina Secretary of State writes the Secretary of State in Indiana, and he, I'll paraphrase here, basically says, go get that. That's ours. We want it back. Um, And I find it to be kind of a funny comment on state government in 1897 that the Secretary of State in Indiana walks down the street to go visit Charles Shotwell and knocks on his door. And he tells Shotwell, hey, The state of North Carolina says that thing you've got hanging up on the wall there is their property. And they say you need to give it back. And Shotwell says, no. So nothing happens for 28 years. Until one day in 1925, a lawyer named Charles Reed starts contacting people in North Carolina. Charles Reed was a front for the Shotwell family. I don't think they knew that at the time. And Reed starts telling people, okay, if you want this thing back, you're going to have to pay for it. And the state says, no, we're not going to buy something that belongs to us. So Reed goes away. And nobody hears about the copy of the Bill of Rights for decades. The state can't just go get it because they don't know if Shotwell still has it or if he's sold it to somebody else or exactly where it's being kept. But today, we know that the Shotwell family had it almost all along. Charles kept it his whole life. He lived a full, long life into his 80s. It ended up in the possession of his son, Greer. Greer hung it up in his living room until he died in 1972. And then it ends up with his widow, who had it on the wall in her assisted living center in Indianapolis. 
And when she died, it ended up in the possession of her daughters. I think what was remarkable about the Shotwell family was how unremarkable they were, that they were just regular, plain, old Midwestern folks. They weren't these crazy collectors. They were just regular folks who were just sort of thinking, well, this is our copy of the Bill of Rights. But by the 1990s, the granddaughters of Charles Shotwell, who are now getting up in age themselves, started to realize two things. One was that they realized that they didn't know how to properly take care of the document and were alarmed to find that it was starting to fade a little bit uh, as a result of being exposed to the environment too much. And the second thing was that the world of historic documents was really exploding. The documents like theirs were starting to sell for millions of dollars. And they started to realize, you know, we have something really potentially valuable here. And that is where things take a turn. First off, the state of North Carolina wouldn't pay for it because, again, they considered it stolen property. So the Shotwell sisters eventually talked to an antiques dealer in Chicago who goes looking for a potential buyer. I know Michael Jordan was mentioned. Oprah Winfrey was mentioned. A lot of these parties looked at it and, and thought about how exciting the object was and yet how much baggage came along with it and they all declined and after a few years finally somebody shows interest and says yes i'll buy it and that person fatally was wayne pratt who is wayne pratt wayne pratt was uh an incredibly successful dealer in primarily antiques furniture back in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s. He's one of these archetypal rags to riches stories. Pratt grew up in Boston, and he always said that he started his antiques career at age seven, rooting through attics, finding things, and selling them. And over time, he becomes this really successful and well-known antiques dealer who loved to tell stories. I think he realized that the antiques world almost more than anything, is about backstory. It's about not only the story of where the objects come from, but who the person is selling them and what their story is. And by the late 1990s, he's on top of the antiques world. And he gets a regular gig on this new show on PBS. It's Antiques Roadshow from Austin, Texas. Antiques Roadshow. In all, Pratt appears on six seasons of the show. Now... Also, underneath this pot, there is a cigar box, which is not original to this box. Mm-hmm. Okay, so He's got this thick Boston accent. He's in his 50s, in a suit, bald on top with a neatly trimmed mustache and dark hair. In one clip from the show, he's appraising a set of dominoes. And he's telling the story about how they must have been made by a sailor on a whaling ship off the coast of California. I think they're worth between $4,500 and $5,000. My goodness, not bad. He would come up with these incredible stories about where things came from that were mesmerizing. But for me, watching them when I often when I thought about them and and tried to dig below the surface, you you know, you kind of wondered what the evidence was behind these findings beyond his own expertise, which he he relied on very heavily. And so when he encountered the Bill of Rights, he was very much relying on his reputation his ability as a salesman, as an expert in the field of old things, to make something happen with it where others had failed. 
So Pratt encounters the Bill of Rights, and he wants to make sure that it's the real thing. So he takes it to some expert historians in Washington, D.C. You know, they got this phone call. Hey, we have what we think is an original copy of the Bill of Rights. Can we come and show it to you? And they said, sure, like thinking it's almost never the thing that people think it is. The odds that someone would actually have a real original Bill of Rights are infinitesimally small. So they think it's just going to be this routine visit. And so these folks come in and it's a very sort of odd situation. The visitors aren't identifying themselves. One of them appears to be kind of a bodyguard type character. They open this box and pull this thing out and, you know, the historians are utterly floored to discover that it actually is an original Bill of Rights. The people quickly snap the, you know, document up, put it back in their carton and disappear just as quickly and mysteriously as they arrived. And historians are just kind of like, that was one of the weirdest things that has ever happened to us not really clear what they could have done. It wasn't clear that anybody was breaking the law, so, you know, it's not like they could dial 911 <laughs> yeah, or anything like that. Who do like you that. call? There's no document police. Yeah, exactly. When Pratt takes it to them, the Bill of Rights is glued to a piece of cardboard. You can't see what's on the back, a fact that'll come into play later. But for now, Pratt knows he's got an authentic copy of the Bill of Rights. After he meets with the historians, he has the document very carefully removed from the cardboard backing. And after that, in the year 2000, he buys it from Charles Shotwell's granddaughters for $200,000. But Howard says the thing that really made the deal work, an agreement to keep a secret. His deal with them was a confidentiality agreement where he would not be allowed to say where it came from and they would not be allowed to publicly say that they had sold it to him. And by doing this, he hoped to kind of seal himself off from North Carolina, from the fact that it had been taken from the state. Now, Pratt almost certainly knows the backstory, which means he also knows that he can't just go out in public to sell the Bill of Rights, since the state of North Carolina has been saying for the better part of a century that it's their stolen property. So he has to come up with a new story. His story was that he wasn't allowed to tell who the buyer was, but that the circumstance was that the buyer had found it in one of these almost magical moments where they lifted up a sign or or some such thing in the back of a hardware store in upstate New York and found it underneath. Pratt starts taking this thing around and telling other antiques dealers, hey, I've got what I think is an original copy of the Bill of Rights, but I don't know its exact backstory. One dealer named Bill Reese sends his researchers out to figure out where this thing might have come from. They weren't able to come up with any conclusive evidence. And so Reese theorized that there may have been this kind of unknown 15th copy. Um, He said it was not unusual in that time, the late 1700s, for an extra copy of an important document to be made for one of the top officials in the government. So now the document has an even better story. Now, not only did it just kind of turn up one day, but it could also be an authentic copy of the Bill of Rights that nobody knew about. If a state like North Carolina couldn't claim it, that meant it would be much easier to sell. So from there, Pratt goes looking for somebody with deep pockets who might want to buy it. And that leads him to Philadelphia. We hold these truths to be self-evident. If you're wondering, that is the voice of actor Richard Dreyfus. He was just one of the celebrities who opened up the National Constitution Center on July 4th, 2003. From the 
It's this brand new multi-million dollar museum just down the street from the Liberty Bell and Independence Hall. Ladies and gentlemen, my name's Joe Torcella and I've been waiting six and a half years to say something. We made it! Joe Torcella was the CEO of the new museum at the time and it's this mad rush at the end to get everything ready and open? We were, you know, close to opening and much of the design of the museum was premised on interactive exhibitry. We'd come late to the idea that artifacts were important. And in late 2002, months before the National Constitution Center is set to open, almost out of the blue comes this incredible offer for one of the biggest artifacts of them all, an original copy of the Bill of Rights. And Torcella says it almost felt too good to be true. It, it did sort of feel like, you know, this, this might be meant to be. Um, but then, as I said, when, once we started investigating, it started feeling like something different entirely. And by the end of it, it felt pretty, it absolutely felt pretty sleazy. The initial price, $5 million. It would eventually get knocked down to $4 million. But either way, the museum is on board. But they, too, want to make sure they're getting what they're paying for. So they get the seller to send a picture of the front and, for the first time, the back of the Bill of Rights. Now, those pictures go to some expert historians, the same historians, it turns out, that Pratt had visited a few years before. Now, back then, those historians had only been able to look at the front of the document because, at the time, the back of it was glued to a piece of cardboard. But now that they could look at the back of it, they noticed something. Something new. Something critical. The marking of the, of the clerk on the back of the document clearly suggested it was the North Carolina copy. And it's not long after Torcella figures out that the document he's being offered is really North Carolina's copy of the Bill of Rights that he gets a very different kind of offer. I got a call on my cell phone from the FBI, which I thought was really odd because I thought, gee, the FBI doesn't just call you on your cell phone. That sounds an awful lot like, <laughs> like a scam. But it really is the FBI. And they need his help. The document, in fact, is under threat, uh, and maybe this is where it came in, that, you know, that, that the group of people involved have sort of threatened to take it out of the country, and that they wanted, you know, would we be willing to participate in, in a kind of sting to recover the documents? Long and the short of it is, you know, we, we said yes. Coming up, the inside story of that sting operation is told by the undercover agent who was in the room when it happened. Plus, how do you prove that the Bill of Rights really is the Bill of Rights? It involves a typo, some really old handwriting, and vanilla milkshakes from Cookout. All of that, when Away Message continues. This is Away Message. I'm Jeremy Markovich. Just to recap, North Carolina's original copy of the Bill of Rights, which was stolen by a Union soldier in 1865, ended up in the hands of an antiques dealer who was trying to sell it for millions of dollars. 
despite the fact that the state of North Carolina said it was stolen property. So for this next part of the story, I called up a guy who knows a little bit about North Carolina state government. I'm Mike Easley, and I was governor of North Carolina from 2001 to 2009. Easley started off on a high note. For one thing, he got the endorsement of North Carolina's own Andy Griffith. And that's why I'm for Mike Easley. But by all accounts, 2003 was not a good year for North Carolina. There was a recession. That hit North Carolina pretty hard. Hurricane Isabel hit the Outer Banks. Now, in terms of the size of this storm, this is a very large storm. We don't want to... And in the midst of all of this, Easley is sitting in the governor's mansion one night. I remember being... um up in the southwest bedroom where I had a desk working on the state of the state address when I got this call uh, that um, Governor Rendell from Pennsylvania was on the other line and wanted to speak to me. And what was he calling about? When I got on with him, uh, he had just come into office. He was elected in '02, so he took office in January '03. Governor Rendell called and said that he was on the board of the new Constitutional Center. And Pennsylvania's governor tells Easley, hey, look, somebody wants to sell us what we believe is North Carolina's copy of the Bill of Rights. And I told him I was certainly surprised to hear that it had surfaced again and that I certainly want to figure out a way to get it. Remember, the state of North Carolina had maintained for more than 100 years that the Bill of Rights was state property. It was stolen and North Carolina would not pay for it. But when Easley was on the phone with Pennsylvania's governor, he got a pretty crafty idea. I told him why didn't he have the people who wanted to sell it to contact me. And uh, eventually, I know I did talk to someone. They were asking $5 million, and I just said, sure, we, we, we can do that. We'd love to have it back. Uh, and then at that point, I called uh, Reuben Young, my legal counsel in the governor's office, and told him I wanted to put together a sting operation like we used to do back when I was district attorney your instincts as a district attorney kicked in i responded to um the opportunity just like i would in the district attorney's office if somebody would have said uh we have a kilo of cocaine we want to sell you and you know my immediate response would have been yeah, sure, I need that. Um, you know, what's it going to take to get it? And then I would have sent somebody around there to buy it. Uh, ostensibly to buy it, but to actually to make the arrest. So that's exactly the same instinct that kicked in when I heard about the Bill of Rights that I knew it was ours. And, and I know I had to be out of it. I need to be far away from it because nobody would believe the other go to himself because going to come get this. Or, or, you know, and they <laughs> certainly wouldn't have brought it to me. But Wayne Pratt and his associates were still going ahead with their plans to sell it to the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia. And so a lot of people get involved. The North Carolina Attorney General's Office, the U.S. Attorney's Office, law enforcement in North Carolina and Pennsylvania, and the FBI. And finally, a special agent in the Philadelphia office named Robert Whitman. I was an FBI agent from 1988 to 2008. During that time, I was able to recover more than $300 million with the stolen art and cultural property. Basically, Whitman told me, whenever the FBI was asked to track down a priceless artifact, he would get the call. 
Well, probably the most valuable piece uh, that I ever recovered was the uh, North Carolina Bill of Rights. Uh, the value on that has been placed at close to $100 million if it could be sold. In other words, if it could be brought legitimately to market and marketed to, uh, you know, to the collector societies and whatnot, it could actually bring as much as $100 million. Uh, true value, though, of course, is zero because it belongs to the state of North Carolina. It's owned by the people of North Carolina, and therefore uh, it can't be sold. It's worth a lot and nothing at the same time. Well, that's the, that's the case with all stolen art. It was 2003 that I got the call. I had a call from our FBI office in Raleigh, and they said that uh, an individual uh, was trying to sell the North Carolina's copies bill, the Bill of Rights, to uh, uh, the, uh, the National Constitution Center. They made a veiled threat that peace, if it wasn't properly you know, bought back, that it may end up in the Middle East somewhere. So it was a veiled threat to show that you know, they were willing to get rid of it. So we, we initiated an undercover operation to try to recover Philadelphia. Whitman says they had to be careful. For one thing, they didn't know exactly where the Bill of Rights was, and even if they did and tried to search, let's say, a house where they thought it was, what happens if it's not there and the owner gets spooked? There's a possibility it could be destroyed rather than turned over, and that was not acceptable. So the FBI comes up with this idea. First off, they get the National Constitution Center and its lawyers to play along. I mean, what I assumed at the beginning is we were going to call and say, yeah, we'd like to buy it. Can you bring it over next Tuesday? Again, here's Joe Torsella, who was the museum's CEO at the time. Except that what really wasn't kind of clear at the beginning was how real uh, it was going to need to be. There's a lot of real negotiation, a lot of back and forth and haggling. After a few weeks, Torsella and his lawyers have reached a deal with a lawyer who was representing the seller, Wayne Pratt. Torsella's people would bring the money and the paperwork if that lawyer would bring the actual Bill of Rights. We had this handoff arranged. It was all very cloak and dagger. It was in a law firm. There were all these weird code words. Robert Whitman, the FBI agent, knows that he has to be there in the room when all of this goes down. So he decides to go undercover and makes up a backstory with a fake name. In this particular case, I was uh, Robert Clay, C-L-A-Y. And uh, what I was doing, I was acting as a philanthropist that was at the uh, height of the internet bubble. And I had made all my money in the internet, uh, on the internet at the time, with uh, things like AOL and, <laughs> and popular things that were happening. So that was the backstory, was I was an internet philanthropist who uh, had made a bunch of money and was able to uh, put money forth for the uh, Constitution Center. You were a dot-com guy who probably had the, the luck of not being in 2003, being able to be searched on, on Facebook or uh, anywhere else. Yes. Well, it was before that existed. Yeah. And so the day arrives, March 18th, 2003. Whitman and others are in downtown Philadelphia. And it was around the 18th floor of the office building. Very nice conference room, uh, What you typically see a lot of windows looking out on the uh, skyscrapers around the city. And uh, on, the, on the actual long conference room table, they had a series of documents set up in document holders and folders that are to be signed, uh, just as if we were doing a real deal. So we actually had a check drawn up on the National Constitution Center's uh, you know, uh, bank account, which was a cashier's check for $4 million. A, re a real so, check? 
A real check. Of course, it was never going to be paid, but, but we had it there. Now, Wayne Pratt himself is not there, but a lawyer representing him is. And the lawyer walks in, he shakes hands, looks through the documents, and sees this $4 million check. That's when he made the phone call. It was almost like a drug deal in some respect. You know, you, you see the money, then you make the phone call to have the drugs delivered. And in this case, but it wasn't drugs, it was the uh, North Carolina copy of the Bill of Rights. And it was delivered by a basically a bicycle messenger. A guy came on a bike <laughs> to the building, parked his bike outside. He was carrying the the uh, document, and which is a large document. It's probably three and a half feet high. He was carrying it in a just a common you know a cardboard carrier. It wasn't rolled up. It was flat, but it was a cardboard type of carrier. And he comes into the building with this thing. Comes up to the uh, offices. And he comes in. We put it into a conference room and opened it up. It was amazing to see this piece. It was uh, with the original uh, document from 1789 that George Washington uh, had sent, had John Adams' signature on it, had sent to the state of North Carolina for ratification. So do you remember what you said when, like, you know, what your uh, reaction was when you actually saw it get out? Do you remember what you said? I said, that's really a neat-looking piece, isn't it? <laughs> that's fantastic. <laughs> you know, it was like, wow, that's, a, that's the Bill of Rights. Once we saw the piece come in, I moved it to the end of the conference room table in order to get it away from everybody, to get it away from people. And I made the excuse that I was so enamored at looking at it that it just, you know, fascinated me and I wanted to read it. Because what I was doing, I uh, was moving it away so that nobody would be around it, so that I could make the uh, signal, which was to knock, have, have the attorney go outside, knock on another conference room door about 10 feet away from our conference room and have the other five agents that were waiting there to come into the room. So we, uh, I sent the attorney out. He uh, went out the, uh, the door very quickly. He said he made some excuse and he had to go get something. And he knocked on the door. The agents then came in. When this attorney, who is trying to sell the Bill of Rights to you, sees these guys go out and all of a sudden a bunch of FBI agents come in, what does he do? Uh, he was a bit surprised. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Governor Easley gets a phone call. He said, we got it. I said, got what? What are you talking about? He said, we got the Bill of Rights. About two weeks later, Whitman and another agent put the Bill of Rights onto the private jet of FBI Director Robert Mueller. They fly it down to North Carolina, returning it to Raleigh for the first time in 138 years. And I thought we were home free, but it was uh, five years of court proceedings. And that is where Karen Blum comes in. I'm the research rat in the Department of Justice. Her more formal title is a deputy attorney general for the state of North Carolina. Back in March of 2003, she'd only been on the job there for a few months when the word comes in that the FBI had finally seized the Bill of Rights. There was whooping and hollering in our office. Uh, how often is there whooping and hollering in the attorney general's office? I, I probably shouldn't answer that question. <laughs> but even though the document was back in the state of North Carolina, it was not technically in state custody. It was being held at the U.S. Marshal's office in Raleigh. A federal judge in North Carolina is being asked to decide who gets to keep a rare copy of the Bill of Rights. The FBI and here's where Wayne Pratt comes back into the picture. Remember, he's the antiques dealer who bought the Bill of Rights a few years before. Pratt's lawyer, Hugh Stevens, gave an interview to NPR a few weeks after the sting operation. When the government comes and takes something away from you, uh, they have to show some just reason and provide you with some kind of notice and hearing. They can't just swoop down and, and take something. 
Stevens says there's no proof the document really is North Carolina's copy of the Bill of Rights. He says it could be one of at least four other versions of the manuscript that also are unaccounted for. It's Karen Blum's job to prove not only that this is an authentic copy of the Bill of Rights, but also that it's North Carolina's copy of the Bill of Rights. Now, there are, at this point, three other copies that nobody can seem to find. New York's and Georgia's were lost in fires, and Maryland's had also been stolen. Now, the stakes here are high. If somehow Karen and her team lose in court, if they're not able to prove conclusively that this is North Carolina's copy of the Bill of Rights, the document could be turned back over to Pratt, and it might go back underground again. Maybe this time for good. So Karen starts doing a ton of research. Early on, she goes over to the U.S. Marshal's office to see the document in person. You actually got to put your finger on it and... and it wasn't just my finger. <laughs> it wasn't just you. It was many people. I put my hand on it. <laughs> oh. Oh. <laughs> yeah, you know, one opportunity, a U.S. Marshal standing there saying, it's okay, you can touch it if your hands are clean, it's fine. Go ahead and touch it, everybody else has. No, my excuse is the dude with the gun told me to touch it. Okay. She takes a bunch of pictures of it and starts looking through the archives herself. And it takes a few months before she notices something wrong. There's a word that doesn't match up with the other original copies of the Bill of Rights. On the others, the word is wherein. On the copy that's supposedly North Carolina's copy, it doesn't say wherein, it says where. Karen makes this discovery late on New Year's Eve 2003, and at first, she's horrified. At about 11 o'clock at night, when I could contact absolutely nobody because the first thought that went through my head was it's a fake but then she looks at other north carolina documents from the period documents that referenced the state's copy of the bill of rights and when those documents make reference to that specific part of the bill of rights they also contain the word where and not wherein now that typo is a very big clue that the document came from north carolina But to get even more proof, she calls in the big gun. Please state your full name. George Stevenson, Jr. Stevenson was an expert working for the state archives. He looked at who knows how many state documents from the late 1700s. And when he looks at the back of the Bill of Rights, he finds the smoking gun. Remember, for years, nobody could see the back of the document. And on the back is something called the endorsement. Now, when North Carolina received its copy of the Bill of Rights, somebody wrote an endorsement on the back, basically saying that, yes, the state had officially received it. Stevenson recognizes that the handwriting on the back in the endorsement is that of the governor's private secretary, a guy named Pleasant Henderson. Please look at Plaintiff's Exhibit 65, the endorsement on the reverse of the Bill of Rights manuscript. Very well, I'm looking at it now. Do you have an opinion whether writing on the endorsement of the Bill of Rights manuscript is written in Pleasant Henderson's handwriting? I have an opinion, yes. What is your opinion? My opinion is that Pleasant Henderson wrote that endorsement as well. I have no further questions. And between that signature and the typo and a few other details, Karen and her colleagues proved to a judge that this document really is the North Carolina copy of the Bill of Rights. And after a long legal process, they get a ruling that this document belongs to the state, now and forever. When the Attorney General's office finally resolved the case in 2008, I remember walking back from court with lead counsel Dale Talbert, and we stopped on the Capitol grounds and shook hands, 
and decided that a belly bump would probably not be uh, appropriate at the time, but I'm pretty sure we went out for cookout vanilla shakes, which is what we did the night before every single court argument. We would go to cookout and get a vanilla shake. So that's that's how it ended on our end. So cookout vanilla shakes played a, a prominent role in the recovery of the North Carolina Bill of Rights. You have no idea. <laughs> In the end, nobody was ever prosecuted in connection to the case, including Wayne Pratt, the antiques dealer who'd bought the Bill of Rights, only to have it seized. Well, he was very scarred by the experience. He felt that he had been you know, wronged. He insisted to me uh, on multiple occasions that there's no proof that the document came from North Carolina. David Howard, the author, was one of the only people who interviewed Pratt about the case before his death in 2007. I think... He had somehow convinced himself that there was a different kind of truth to this document, but that the the history on it is so clear that it's really irrefutable. It seems like, I mean, even just as I'm hearing you talk here, it just seems like in two different ways, like a very American story. I mean, one, yeah. it's the Bill of Rights. There's nothing more American than the Bill of Rights and the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. But also, I mean, there's nothing more American than capitalism. That's a great way to think of it. And I think the story is really the collision of those two forces. And it's really refreshing in a certain way because, you know, often I think these days people end up feeling like capitalism always wins. And this is one of those instances where principle and and sort of like the good of the people wins out over having the most money and the best lawyers. There's something really gratifying about that. But for as long as this process took, more than 100 years to get it back, and then years upon years of legal battles, there was one part that happened very quickly. In August of 2005, in the middle of this long, drawn-out fight over ownership, a federal judge rules that the U.S. government should no longer be holding on to the North Carolina copy of the Bill of Rights. Remember, it had just been sitting in the U.S. Marshal's office in Raleigh for more than two years. And so the ruling said that North Carolina needed to come get the Bill of Rights immediately. So, minutes later, the phone rings in the governor's mansion. I was there with my son Michael and said, Judge Bull has just ruled that this document goes back to the state and that I'm to return it to the Capitol immediately. And uh, I was back at the mansion again and I, I said, we can't, you know, can we wait and do this some sort of ceremony? So he said, he told me to get it over there today, right now. It was no ordinary homecoming. What had been missing for 138 years was recovered within five days. The document was recovered in an We uh, went over and had the press conference and I really couldn't think of a whole lot to say. Uh, it's really, uh, 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 it's awesome. It'll blow your mind. You know, that's the uh, legal term, res ipsa loquita, which is Latin for the thing speaks for itself. And that was really what it was. It was speaking for itself. But after all of that effort, after the sting operation and the legal battles and that big ceremony, today the state copy of the Bill of Rights spends almost all of its time in a chilly vault underneath the state archives building where almost nobody can see it. And Sarah Kuntz, the state archivist, says she really doesn't have a choice. Why is it here and not on display or somewhere else? That's a great question. The main concern that we have with having this document on display all the time is fading. Um, When it was out of the state's custody, 
it was exposed to a lot of light, a lot of natural and fluorescent light. So it is extremely faded in spots. And we have been advised by an outside conservator to not have it on permanent display. But from time to time, it does come out and go on display. And each time it does, Sarah is there. You're, you're never far behind wherever it is. It's, 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 it, you're, you're, you're keeping an eye on it no matter where it goes. Right. Wherever, wherever Bill goes, I go. <laughs> I'm his keeper. The document never goes out without me. It never is on display without my presence. So I've literally been there to talk to thousands of people when they see the document, and it never gets old. Um, to enjoy people's reactions to see. This uh, momentous occasion in the state of North Carolina. We get to unveil today our Bill of Rights. Which and only each time it does come out, those people remind her that this document can't just belong to one of us, but it does belong to all of us. We're not those kind of people, the ones that speak no evil, loose can and righteous weasel. I'm never wrong. And if you looked in our basket, Away Message is written and edited by me, Jeremy Markovich, and produced by me and James Michkowski. Our digital manager is Kimberly Simpson. Our editor-in-chief is Elizabeth Hudson. The 2005 press conference audio comes courtesy of WREL-TV. Music is by Blue Dot Sessions. Our closing song is Not Those Kind of People by Bombadil, a terrific band from Durham. If you can't get enough of this story, two of the people featured in this episode have written books that you should check out. One is Lost Rights, The Misadventures of a Stolen American Relic by David Howard. The other is Priceless, How I Went Undercover to Rescue the World's Stolen Treasures by former FBI agent Robert Whitman. A very special thank you to the Pennsylvania Treasurer's Office and to the North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources for granting us special permission to see the Bill of Rights. You can see pictures of the vault, the Bill of Rights, and, bonus, the actual 1663 charter from King Charles II that created the colony of Carolina. That is also down in the vault. They call it Chuck. You can look at all of those by visiting the episode page on our website, away.ourstate.com. This podcast is a production of Our State Magazine, an employee-owned company that's been celebrating North Carolina for more than 85 years. If you like this show, you will love the magazine. Use the promo code AWAY to get $5 off a year's subscription is our thank you for listening. Also, if you like what you hear, give us a good rating on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts or drop us a line. Our email is podcast at ourstate.com. And one more thing. When you're Bob Whitman, the FBI agent who's returning the Bill of Rights to Raleigh for the first time in 138 years, maybe it's not the right time to play a practical joke. So it was April 1st, believe it or not, when we were delivering the piece back. So we decided to do something different for April Fool's Day. So we went across the street uh, the day before, and there's a uh, uh, like a small gift shop where you can buy a copy of the Bill of Rights, all right, for a dollar ninety nine. So we uh, we took it and we put it in the top of the crate, underneath the, the the lid of the crate, not touching the Bill of Rights, but on top of the foam, you know, that covered the Bill of Rights, so that when we got to Raleigh. And we did the big unveiling to open it up in front of all these uh, important people, the VIPs and whatnot. Jay knocked the little copy out of the top, uh, and we did a Three Stooges thing like we knocked the Bill of Rights off, and it fell on the floor. 
<laughs> kind, of, kind of like a joke. It was a joke, you know. Uh -huh. uh, and uh, but everybody was shocked. And, uh, <laughs> I, I couldn't figure out. They weren't laughing. We will be back with our final episode of season two. We'll talk to you then. <laughs>